For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Richard Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. I am so excited about today's show and our guest. Uh, Christy Tate will be coming on in just a moment. I want to acknowledge, uh, I see that Natasha here is wishing everybody happy Red Sox Day. I'm wearing my Red Sox. Uh, I'm drinking from my new Valentine mug that my sister sent me for my birthday. As you all know, all this month, I am celebrating my birthday and favorite things, people, places, and I am just getting to know uh, Christy Tate. I'm going to bring her on. Uh, but I am such a fan of your honesty, your writing. Uh, I can't, I've already ordered group uh, after reading this book. Uh, everyone, you have to get this book. It's BFF. And we're going to talk about your journey. Uh, but before we get there, uh, who or what are you celebrating today? Oh, I love that question. Well, first of all, happy birthday to you. And I'm celebrating. I had my first night back in my house after 11 days being on the road on a book tour, which was amazing. But there's something really special about coming home and being just I'm a mom. I drove my kid to their activities and I'm celebrating ordinary life. Uh, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. How old are your kids, if you don't mind my asking? Sure. My daughter is 13 and my son is 12. So they are busy little bees. Now, having read this book, uh, are you seeing signs of yourself in your daughter? Um, or and if, and if you have these discussions with her that we read about in the book? Yes. So my book is about friendship and the struggles that I've had as an adult, which were seated way back in grammar school. And it's been very painful to see my daughter have to go through middle school. And surprisingly, some of my son's social stuff, I didn't picture it as um, just no one gets out of middle school without some kind of social hiccups. And it's been, someone said, when you raising kids, you have to relive, you, you relive it. You relive your childhood, which is turning out to be true for better or worse. Well, I want to ask you, I mean, I grew up, uh, I'm, I just turned 62. I wear it proudly. Uh, but uh, I, I'm so thrilled that I grew up at a time where social media did not exist. I'm glad that I was able to have what I consider, uh, here's that word again, normal childhood, going through school, doing the things that most kids do. I can't even imagine what it's like either to be a child or a mother uh, in the days of social media and having to deal with those layers that are put on top of it. Yeah, I have to tell you that it gives me heartburn every single day. Even just yesterday, I had a conversation with another mom. Her question to me was, do you have like a, do you track your kid's phone? Right? So you know where you can sur surveil your kid. And we have experimented with that. Both of my kids have phones and the phones were originally, you know, for safety. So you can call us and you know, we know where you are. And of course, there's so much more happening on a phone. And I'm really struggling drawing the line between letting my kids have some autonomy and some privacy and also how to keep them safe. I, I don't know how to do it. And I'm reading conflicting reports. And I think we have to do what every family does, which is come up with some boundaries and ethics and, that are going to have to evolve with my kids ages. But the problem is like, I don't know how to get it right. The first time we've, we've had some blunders and, it makes me very, very afraid. And I've had both of my children had situations where they were on social media and they could see something happening that they were not included in, they were not invited to. That to me is so devastating. You get to see pictures of a great party that's happening in real time in your home with your mom. That's awful. These kids have a real heavy load to carry. 
Well, those are issues that as adults, I, you know, I just left Facebook um, and I left Facebook because I found that it was taking me down a rabbit hole when I was focused on what everyone else was doing. Yeah. Um, I go one day a month. That's my boundary. Uh, so for those of you who are asking, I'll be on tomorrow. Uh, I haven't been on since uh, a month ago. Uh, and it's just my one day to check in with everybody and say, here I am. There are other ways of communicating besides this, because so many people are caught up now in that being their main method of communication. Yeah. Um, these issues that come up in this book, and I want to go back a little bit um, to group as well, because I've been reading about your history leading up to that and what came out of that. And now this book, um, first of all, I want to say you are a brilliant writer. Oh, uh, you thank you. <laughs> No, it's true. You hook us in from the very beginning and you can't put it down. Uh, and I'm sure that you want to see somebody before the end of this show say, I just ordered your book. Um, so you these issues that we're learning about with you in this book, particularly, um, we start to learn about with you as an adult. Mm -hmm. um, when I was reading about Liam, for example, um, I had my own Leo in my life. And as I'm reading this, I know that your demographic that you're writing about, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you are writing this book for women. That's a great question, actually, Richard. I, I was picturing a female readership, but I don't, I, I have questions about my own, um, limitations in that regard. I have a good friend who I just saw when I was in Albany and he was like, I got a lot out of your book. Like, why are you, yes. why are you limiting your audience? And maybe because my real struggles in friendship have occurred in my relationships with women. I do have male friends. I treasure them. And the kind of deep gut wrenching, real gritty, gritty pain hasn't come up there. It's really come up with my female friendships. But you make a very good point that this book is not, should not be just limited to women. Many, many men care about friendship. They're looking at friendships. They want to deepen. They want to know what, what they could do to have rich and nourishing relationships as well. So that's an excellent point. Now, I'm in a very ha happy marriage. I've been, uh, my husband and I, we've been together now. This is the 34th year together. But throughout my uh, 20s, <laughs> um, I had relationships, uh, whether you call them that or not. Um, and there are certain things that, I, patterns that I saw that you were having that I also experienced. And and I want to talk about Liam, of course. Uh, but uh I always found that when I would get into a relationship, I would become a chameleon. I would become what I felt that I wanted them. I wanted to be what they wanted me to be instead of being my authentic self. And you went down that rabbit hole, hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. What do you think was this pattern that, and how did that begin for you? Do you feel yeah, I remember that my very, very first real grown up boyfriend, my first French kiss, that the pattern was already set. I was so desperate for him to like me. I had just lost some weight. I was a senior. I was going to the tanning beds. This was 1991. Uh, and this boy called me. He he had I caught his eye and he called me and he said, come over if you don't come over, Sasha will come over. And I thought, oh my God, it has to be me. He picked me. There was something so compelling about being chosen. And I, I was completely externally driven. So he liked me. Okay, well, I guess I like him too. That is not the recipe for a healthy relationship, which we all know now. I just have to say, it took me a lot of time and <laughs> time in my therapy chair and time growing up to really learn to live from the inside out. And that pattern, maybe it was, I grew up in a home that had addiction in it. I had my own, I had an eating disorder that I think really re helped me be repressed and regressed emotionally. So where yes. other girls and boys were sort of figuring out, hey, I don't have to just listen to the kind of music he likes. I can listen to what I like. 
I didn't learn that till my mid twenties. And it's a lot harder when you're older because you're supposed to already know these things, but I had no, I didn't have enough recovery. I had too many secrets. I was just very distracted, emotionally unavailable person for many years. Now, looking back on these relationships, do you see now, uh, I, and I pulled up a statement that I'm going to bring up on the screen here, and I'm only showing half of the statement because there's a lot more to it than what we're going to see here. And I, it, it, uh, it says, after more than a decade of dead end dates and dysfunctional relationships, Christy Tate has reclaimed her voice and settled down. Her days of agonizing in group therapy over guys who won't commit are over. That's not all there is to that statement. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's a teaser, I guess you'd say. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, but as you look back on these relationships that you were having, do you find that in every, I think I know what your answer is going to be, at least I, I think I may know. Um, do you find that you saw these people for who they were the moment you met them? Ooh, I just got chills. That is a really good question. The truth is that somewhere inside of me, I did see, I did see. And like, I, I think about, Le okay, we'll go back to Liam. You mentioned him. I remember standing at a party. This is like a graduate school party and everybody, by then I was um, sober. So I wasn't drinking. Everyone around me is drinking and having fun. We're young, 20 somethings. And I looked over at Liam and he was like two seconds from passing out and he'd spilled a drink on himself. And I looked at him and I said, I love him so much. What in the <laughs> world? What was I, I know, saying? I, know. I mean, that to me, like, I, I couldn't say I didn't know that he might have a relationship to alcohol that would be troubling to me. It might be working great for him. But what was I, what was it, what was I saying I loved when I saw him on the verge of passing out? We'd never had a conversation and he looked really somewhat almost imperiled by his, the way that he had drank that night. So on some level I knew, and I had a lot, I spent a lot of time asking myself the question, why is it Christy that you want, you are seeking out people who are likely to have troubling relationships to substances who were workaholics, alcoholics, you know, drug addicts, what's that saying about you? And I, it took me a long time to turn that laser focus on myself and to, to confront my own fears of intimacy, because that's essentially what it was. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm seeing two paths that you were either going down and you can bring us to where you actually were. Uh, either A, by focusing on someone like that, you're taking the complete focus off of your own issues and the things that were yeah. bothering you deep down or number two, you felt you could save this person. Oh, <laughs> I hate to say, I think it was both. I think somewhere deep inside of me, I thought I could save them, but I have to say, you make a good point. I got the emotional hit of feeling superior. I never got drunk. I showed up at my work every day. I had a balanced life. I went to 12 step meetings. I mean, first of all, who wants to date that girl? <laughs> you know, like contemptuous, somewhat right. superior. Um, and but also, I do think that I I was hoping that my recovery would lure Liam and the other men. There were lots of Liams. He was just one. Um, I thought I thought I could lure them into the sunshine of the spirit, and we could live happily ever after. Which is essentially saying, I'm going to save you from what I'm projecting onto you is your addiction. And I, that's not really for me to say at the end of the day. Now, you don't have to answer this question, <laughs> but is Liam actually based on one person or is it a composite of many people? He is his own person. Yeah, I didn't do, I couldn't figure out the writerly trick of composites. Although, although when I look back at my history, it's like I certainly could have lumped them all together and made a composite. So I'm sure, I mean, as we're reading the book, we see, it's right there at the beginning of the book, uh, about the night where you said, I've had enough, I'm, this is over for me. Um, how many of those nights were there before you got to that point? Ooh. I mean, I for me, in every relationship that I've left, there have been at least, at least five to 10 practice leavings. I'm done. I'm done. 
I, and they were always very dramatic in my head. I call all my friends. I call them from pay phones because that's how old I am. I'm I'm almost 50. And I, well, I, I, was, on you. <laughs> right, I would say I'm done. I'm done. And then I'd have to do the embarrassing thing where I'd get back together. And then I'd have to call my friends and say, uh, I know I said I was done, but apparently I'm going to go one more round. Um, it's leaving a relationship when you're very hooked in, for me, leaving a relationship when I was so hooked in and I called that love. And maybe I think there was plenty of love in there, but it was a lot of unhealthy. I mean, the buzzword, of course, is codependence, but and, and low self-esteem was not helping me. I in every single relationship I had, I always thought this is my last chance. This is my only chance. That makes no sense whatsoever. I was reasonably social. I could have gotten myself out there and found lots of different men, but I was really locked into the lie that I had one chance and it was this guy. So I had to go to the bone and make it work, which is super self-destructive when the relationship is not that healthy. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who have had these types of relationships, and there may be some who have been fortunate enough not to have them. Uh, but one of the things that I was reading uh, that just jumped out at me was, the, in my case, it was a Frankie. It was Liam <laughs> in your book. Frankie's no longer around, so I can talk about this. But the um, that all my friends were seeing how destructive this relationship was. And all of my friends were constantly saying, get away, get away, get away. But I didn't listen to them until I hit rock bottom. Uh, and the same thing was happening in your situation. Oh, I definitely am a rock bottom lever myself. What, what had happened in my situation was I had gotten so isolated. I knew, I knew what Liam and I were doing was we were at, at best, the best and most tepid way I could say it was we were a mismatch on every level. But I was scared. I was scared someone would tell me to leave. And so what I did was I just isolated myself in the relationship so my friends couldn't see. And part of that was protecting him. I didn't want them to know that he seemed sort of troubled and I didn't want to. I wanted to protect him and I wanted to protect myself. What was I doing accepting this kind of treatment or this kind of, I was saying to them, I want a relationship. I want to settle down, have a family. And yet I was dating Liam who we were not anywhere near, we could barely go to dinner together. And so I was so isolated. I, my friends couldn't see in. I had sort of, this is why I wrote the book BFF because I would get into these patterns real sunk into a relationship that had a lot of addictive qualities. And then my friends would fall away and then you don't have your loving witnesses saying, hey, are you enjoying this? Is this fun? Does this work for you? Have you had sex in the last seven weeks? You know, like nobody could see. And I was totally isolated. And I dumped my friends for a guy over and over and over again. And then the guy would be gone. And then I'd be alone on Lakeshore Drive smoking cigarettes, wondering how I got here. And I got there because of choices I made. Well, I want to go back. Uh, to the beginning of where these choices begin for you. And you, in, 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 forgive me if I get the name wrong, was it Bethany that was your friend in school? Uh, was it, uh, no, am I, am I I wrong? don't know. <laughs> Everybody has a student. Brittany. Oh, Brittany. yes. Brittany, yes. Yes, yes. yes. So I want to go back to Brittany for a moment. Yes. Um, but before we get there, I mean, before... I always like to go back to the five-year-old self because yeah. the five-year-old self to me is the purest self. That's before school starts. That's before peer pressure. People start telling you who you should be, who you shouldn't be. Tell us a little bit about who you were at five years old before you really started in school. Sure. I love that notion of the five-year-old is the purest self. And when I think about when someone says little Christy, I always go back to my five-year-old self. So you're onto something there. And by, by the time I was five years old, I was already deeply ashamed. I was ashamed of my body. It was too big. And I think I had body dysmorphia by the time I was five. I was really no, interrupting, but was this something that was internal or was this something that was being fed to you? That I think it was a combination. I think it was uh, one of the factors that really stoked the fire of my I hate my body was I was very into ballet. And this was before we knew how to talk to girls about their bodies. And my ballet teacher would tell me, 
you know, you have a really, you're good at dancing, but you have a really big stomach. And maybe I just wasn't holding it in, but I just heard that as you're fat, you can have this dance life, but you're fat. So that wasn't helping. Plus I grew up in Texas in the seventies and eighties and we just didn't, we weren't very kind and we wanted our girls to be skinny and smiley and have no problems. And that was not working for me, even at age five. And by age five, I already had a propensity to hide food, to eat too much by myself and just secret it away. And I had a great shame about it and tons of secrets about it. And that's how I started in the world. That's, you know, then, like you said, I got thrown into school. And as a consequence, I also felt like the other girls were better than me. They weren't, I imagined that they weren't binging on graham crackers or hiding or stealing. The only, I was like a really good kid. My whole identity was like, I'm a good girl. Except when it came to food, all my bad behavior, I would steal food. I would lie about food. And it, it was just a huge source of shame. And by the time I get to school, I assume I'm the only one because it was a secret. And it really made it difficult to form relationships, A, because I had secrets, and B, because I had decided by age five, all these other girls are better than I am. There's something really wrong with me. And I have to really bury the true Christy and just try to act normal like these other girls. Now, when you started school, you started in Catholic school. So everyone's wearing uniforms. Yeah. Um, and having not gone through that, do you consider that to be a good or a bad thing? Oh my God. I think it's amazing. I really, my kids don't have that situation. And I had a uniform almost all years, except for one year when I went to public school. And it really does, it really does take off the table. Some of the markers of class that can be really, really stressful and create tons of pressure for kids. Like we couldn't wear Air Jordans. We couldn't wear designer jeans. You had your plaid skirt and your penny loafers. And it really keeps down the distraction. We, at the end of the day, you still know who's got money and who doesn't, but it's not all day long in your face. There's something about that equalization that it's, it's not without its problems, but I think on balance, I would prefer that for my kids. Just take some of this take some of this off the table. You know, you don't have to wear a midriff shirt or Lululemon pants. Like you just, hmm. you wear your uniform. Yeah. Now, I think it was the fifth grade, uh, if I remember correctly, when you went to public school. And that's when you meet Brittany. And you really adopted every aspect of her <laughs> personality, even down to her speech patterns. I love I I, the uh, Clinton. <laughs> I um, first of all, I would just like to give you an affirmation. You're an amazing reader. You are such a joy to talk to. And I am so honored that you have read this so closely. So thank you. And yeah, you. I remember like by the second I had down, I'm telling everybody, buy the book. It's great. That's so that's just so kind. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I went to fifth grade and now the uniform has been stripped away because now I'm in the local public school and I was so overstimulated. There were boys and girls and jeans and I just was really overstimulated. And so at the very, from the jump, you could tell who the popular girl was. There was a queen bee and there's not always a queen bee, but there definitely was a queen bee. And I targeted her and I just was like, I would, I didn't use the word social climbing, but that's a hundred percent what I was doing. I wanted to be in the queen bee's orbit. I wanted to be her deputy and every other girl I viewed as a threat and everything came down to, I wore her the same kind of jeans, the kind of necklace. And she had a lot more resources. She was able mm -hmm. to have a solid gold necklace. And I was like, I can maybe pull off the lapis. And it really, it was, it was very painful because I ended up getting dumped um, for, for good reason. And then I had no other friends that had my back because I had ignored them for mm -hmm. seven or eight months. And when I look back at that experience, which was terrible in fifth grade, I had a lot to learn about friendship. And I don't know how you, someone who was as clueless and social climbing and insecure as I was, how, I don't know how that gets fixed without a huge heartache and public humiliation. <laughs> like maybe there's other ways to do it that could have been gentler. I'm not totally saying I'm glad it happened. I am saying it did teach me to 
to to get my priorities straight around friendship like real fast. Well, yeah, I, years ago, I there was a psychologist and he was speaking. And I mean, we're going back at least 15 years ago that I think I heard this interview. And he said that the problem with uh, society is all he pins it all back to the coonskin cap, because mm-hmm. in the 1950s, uh, when Davy Crockett was the big hit on TV, every kid in school had to have a coonskin cap. Mm. And the kids that had those coonskin caps were the popular kids. And the kids who could not afford them or couldn't get them were ostracized. And it really started a divisiveness in this. And I rem- remember the book when you are begging your mom and I can feel, I can, <laughs> I can feel, you know, for the Atabead necklace uh, that yep. Whitney had. Uh, that you had to have this. And your mom is going, well, who are you? Because you were becoming her. You were really giving up your total identity. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't want anything to do with my own identity. I was like, okay, she slept in pink foam rollers. I'm going to wear pink foam rollers. And I remember coming home early. It was still warm, which in Texas could have been any month, but it must've been October. And I started pronouncing this boy's name, as you mentioned, Clinton. And that's how um, that's how Brittany said this this boy's name. And my mom was like, "What's happening to you?" And she was very. Now that I'm a mom, I can imagine how this must have felt to her to watch I me. Mean, let me back up for a moment. I mean, your mom was a mom at a different time. Is your mom still around, by the way? Yes, yes, she is. Oh, God bless her. Um, your mom was from a different time. Yeah. Um, did she have the resources in order to be able to help you or to tap into what you were going through? You know, I don't, I don't think she knew at all. She would warn me. I remember several occasions when she was like, I would come home and say, well, mom, can I have Brittany over this weekend? And she would say, what about some of the other girls? Like, what about, and she could name like seven girls who I just never paid any attention to. And her point was very wise, right? Like, don't put all your eggs in your Brittany basket. Um, That's not healthy. And you seem a little fixated on her, right? And we were having those conversations. And of course, I wasn't able to hear her. I was kind of like, you know what? I'm doing me. I'm living my best life in the fifth grade at Preston Hollow Elementary. And then, of course, when it all came tumbling down in February, she was super loving to me and she absolutely took care of me. Like once it became clear that I was not, it didn't look like I was going to be able to recover socially. Then my mom took steps instantly to transfer me to a different Catholic school. And so I think that she didn't leave me to just fend for myself, but it wasn't like we, we didn't, nobody went to therapy at the time. And I'm not even sure she would have thought that's, this is a therapeutic situation so I think it was more like we reacted and she was able to get me out of that situation, which I'm very grateful for. But heading into it, I wasn't going to listen to anything anybody told me. Now, having not read Group, uh, does this, um, do the two books overlap in terms of what you were going through at that time? Uh, I know we're in, that's going to bring us to Meredith, um, you know, and meeting her in this group. Is this the same group or is this a different group? This is a different group. The group, the book, it covers a period of right when I was in law school. So this it's opens like in 2000. I mean, yeah, 2002. And then it goes up to my wedding. And it's really focused on how I went to this unorthodox, wacky therapist who ran group therapy. And I did a bunch of his groups and kind of got myself straightened out with the help with like 5000 therapy sessions and a bunch of people helping me in my group where I met Meredith, the friend who's throughout the book, who invited me to work on friendships with her. I met her in a 12 step program. So no therapist there, just sort of the grassroots, you know, people gathering to get well kind of thing. So let's move forward to Meredith, uh, because your book opens, uh, and we learn this is not a spoiler. I hope everyone (laughs) Meredith passed away and your book opens, uh, with this. A question that I'm always interested in when it comes to other writers. Um, the first words that we read in your book, are they the first words that you wrote? Oh, great question. Great question. No, I was convinced that this book should start 
with an incident that happened uh, at a different point in time before Meredith died, where I literally engaged in self-harm to the extent that I drew my own blood because I was so jealous and so envious and so threatened by another woman that I scratched myself till I bled. And I was sure I wanted to like, I wanted to burst into this book with a big old bloody scene. And I thought that would be amazing. And zero people, zero people thought that was a good idea. So I had to like back up a little bit. You know, it's funny because, you know, last night I uh, Legally Blonde was on uh, with mm-hmm. Reese Witherspoon and I'm reading the book. And then I see on the back, uh, you know, you're part of, she has a book group. Yes. How yes. did, how did uh, you get on her radar? I'm going to skip around a little bit, but sure. how did you get on the radar? And, uh, and you've been on her uh, book list twice. Um, actually, it was just for group. Um, and that it was absolutely a thrill of my life. It changed my life. If Reese Witherspoon puts her sticker on your book, your book is going places. It's like a rocket. (laughs) And it was a huge privilege. And I, the pandemic was going on. I didn't think my little book about this white middle-class lady going to therapy was going to really do much. And I got a call one day from my editor at Avid Reader Press. And she said, well, Reese Witherspoon wants your book for her book club. And I was like physically altered, like, oh my God, like shaking. I was like, why? I was like, Reese Witherspoon wants to read about my disastrous sex stories. And she'd already read it. And um, she picks books that I, she thinks, you know, strong women, strong stories. And it was an absolute and total thrill of my life. Wow. Well, it was amazing. And then, I mean, it was just like uh, worlds colliding as I saw this last night. Um, So going into this um, group uh, where you met Meredith, um, you had had, I mean, certain things bring you to that point in life. And I'm sure we're getting like bits and pieces in your book. Um, But when you first met Meredith, whose intentions were all giving, 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 your first impression of her was that she was a witch. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was. I didn't, she was 20 years older than I was, which in my mind, I was, I, I mean, I was pretty immature at the time and I didn't recognize something so basic about life, which is you can have friends of any age you want. And I was in my mid twenties. She was in her mid forties. And I was sort of like, you know, she seemed older and like we would not overlap and I barely knew her. And she came one day to our group and gave me a box of scarves, which is, they were, they were lovely and very strange, you know, like they were these silk scarves and she'd heard something I said about, I was fine. Now that I'd settled down romantically, I was ready to celebrate all the holidays, even the minor ones. So each one of these (laughs) scarves had like a holiday theme and I'm not a scarf person. She was a scarf person. And at that time, she said to me, now that I was not coming into every meeting crying about this boy and that boy and this man dumped me and I'd really come a long way. She said, she said to me, maybe now you want to look at your friendships. And I was like, super scared because somewhere inside of me, like a bell was ringing. Like I suspected I had some work to do to connect better with women, just like I had with men but I didn't want to do it. I kind of want to just like be a happy bride and, and coast along. And, and I didn't like the idea that the work never ends, which is what Meredith was saying to me. And now, as I say to her today, I'm really glad that I took up her invitation and we started looking at our friendships together and shoulder to shoulder got better at being friends. I want to talk a little bit about your process. Uh, as I mentioned before, and this is not just uh, me just throwing uh, phrases out. Uh, you're a brilliant writer. Have you always written? Have you kept journals? Uh, uh, the Are these stories based on uh, recall or going back and looking at these journals that you were possibly keeping at the time? That's a great question. And thank you for the compliments. I have been a very sporadic journal keeper, like in times of intense pain, 
suddenly I become this very committed journaler and then things would get better and my pen would just trail off until I haven't been fully committed until about three years ago when I started doing the artist's way. And now I'm like my three long uh, pages. Uh, 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 uh. You, you don't follow my shows. <laughs> I talk I, about Julie Cameron is my guru. Right. I had a feeling that that was some simpatico. So, yes. so in order to construct this story of, you know, encounters with Meredith that happens in 1999 and 2002, I had to really, I really had to draw on memory, which as we all know is, is not ironclad. And I always, I always hope people understand that a memoir is a, is a crafted object. And certainly if Meredith were here today, she would have, she would have a different story to tell. She'd have her own story to tell about our interactions, but all I can draw on is my memory and my understanding of what happened between us. For those of you out there who are watching who are not familiar with The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron, she talks about doing morning pages every morning. And the morning pages are a mind dump uh, where you just put every thought down on paper and it's really not for anyone else to read. And you know, I did an Artist's Way workshop and one of the mm -hmm. women in the group, uh, she was always afraid that somebody would find her writings. So mm -hmm. I said, well, why don't you shred them afterwards? And she uses them as confetti on New Year's Eve. <laughs> <laughs> so she's been doing that. So, uh, but uh, going back um, with your, you're doing um, everything that Julia Cameron's asking you to do. Um, at what point did you begin to think, hey, wait a minute, my story is universal and I feel that I have a book to tell, a story to tell. Yeah, you know, I have to say, so I started writing group in 2015 and I had been really inspired by other writers and I love to write, but I did not think that I could be a memoirist because I'm not famous. I thought Celine Dion is a memoirist or Bruce Springsteen, you know, not Christy Tate. And I, I found a group of, I fell in with a group of writers who all write personal essay and memoir and I started reading much more deeply in the memoir genre. And I realized I could see, I had one day where I could see the story of group. And that was my first book. I could see it. I was like, oh my God, it's just like Cheryl Strayed, who wrote a book, a very, very famous, wonderful memoir about climbing the Pacific Coast Trail. And I was like, oh, that's what I did. I just went back and forth to my therapist's office, you know, in, in the same, in the same vein, I went on a journey and I changed so I could see that then. And I didn't, but you don't know, I don't know how any writer knows that anyone wants their story until somebody mm -hmm. buys it. And then even when they buy it, like my editor bought the book and I had a book deal, but then we didn't know, was anybody going to take to this? Was the cultural moment right for this? Does anybody want to hear from me? You never know. It's such a leap of faith for every, every essay, every book. And with my second book, BFF, I do believe that friendship is complex and rich and dynamic and heartbreaking and glorious. It's all those things. And I hope that there was enough in there that's universal that at least it could touch somebody and start conversations among people who care about friendship. Years ago, I interviewed Carol Lawrence and she said being, she was talking about being an actress. She said, being in this business is the greatest elixir in the world. The more you get, the more you want. The rub is whether or not the public wants to buy it. And that's the whole thing. I mean, you sit down, you never know. I mean, you had not written a book prior to that. Right. Uh, to grow. Uh, um, once you start writing the book, did your did the book begin to write itself or did it change from what your initial goal was with the book or did it really come out the way that you had envisioned it? That's a great question. The biggest change from conception to publication happened in BFF, which I originally was going to write. The original title of the book was The Jealousy Journal. And I was really interested in the concept of female envy and jealousy because it had really plagued me. It's something that really, speaking of social media, even though I don't need social media to engage in envy of my friends and peers, 
that was such a huge part of my life. It had driven me to self-harm that I really, really wanted to story that. The problem with that book was that, first of all, it was very one note. How many pages would you like to read about Christy Tate and her jealousy? Nobody wants <laughs> 300 pages. And also there wasn't much of an arc. It was sort of like, well, I was jealous in first grade, still jealous, the end. And I needed to really step back and pan out and say, what is the true story of my friendships? And I realized I wanted to write about friendship triangles and certainly envy and jealousy and ghosting and low self-esteem and some of the ways that I've behaved in friendship and felt a victim to other people's behavior because it's so complicated. There's all these memes out there like women support women, all boats rise. I love that and I believe it, but it is not that simple. Under the hood, it is not that simple for many of us. And that's who the mm -hmm. book's for. Mm -hmm. Do you, uh, I mean, and you could only speak from a woman's point of view, but uh, as I said to you at the beginning of the interview, there's so many themes that I was able to glean from this. Um, do you, what is it? If, I, if you don't mind my asking, that makes it so difficult uh, for some women to forge strong bonding friendships with other women. Um, and it's, you know, it's very interesting in terms of the people that end up becoming part of our lives and those who don't become part of our lives. Um, you can meet someone like Meredith, who you think from the get-go that she's a witch. Um, and I love your analogy of that in the book. Um, but then it turns around uh, yeah. because you gave, it, you gave it a chance to grow. Um, and there are some people that we meet and from the moment we meet them, you know, I have a dear friend, she refers to it as soul contracts that yes. we have certain contracts with people that what is it that creates the bond and what is it that causes uh, certain, not just women, men, women, everybody to be like oil and vinegar or oil and water not coming together. Yeah. I think about this all the time because I have the experience too. the soul contract ideas. Like some, some friendships feel like magic. They do. They feel like, how did we come together? I felt that with Meredith. Once I realized we were engaging and enacting friendship, I was like, how is that possible? she could have picked from so many women in Chicago. And so could I, and we did have other friends, but like somehow she and I came together to do this. It's like extraordinary. It, it feels to me like the same kind of magic. Like when I think about my relationship with my husband, which feels like it's got its own magic to it. I can't really explain like on paper, we, we, we go together and in real life we go together, but I don't know why it took so long. And I don't know why, and my chemistry, like some of it's chemistry. Some of it is, I asked a group of women, there were 13 women. And I asked them exactly what you just asked me. Like, why is this so hard for some of us? And I got answers ranging from, I think it's patriarchy, that the patriarchy has an investment in keeping women apart, which that sounds mm -hmm. good to me, but I am not a sociologist and I don't, I don't really know the mechanism. That feels right in my body, but I don't know the mechanism. So I probably shouldn't say much more about that. Some people said white supremacy. Some people said it was um, addiction. So there's lots of reasons that, that I think there's plenty of forces that drive us apart. And when I think about those, it seems amazing that any of us are friends, you know, like <laughs> it makes friendship seem like, like when I think about this, the sperm and the egg that, that created my life, your life, my kids, it's like, wow, that feels like some kind of divine order. And I don't, I cannot explain it. And I'd like to, and I like to think about it, but at the end of the day, some of it really just comes down to magic for me. Do you feel that now that you've written this book that you are looking at friends, what makes a friend, the whole process of friendship, do you look at it through different eyes now? I do. It's so much richer. I feel I did not write this book to make my life better or even to make my friendships better. I thought that work was done and then I was going to memorialize it in the book. But the book itself, the writing of it and now discussing it and giving it to friends, I cannot believe how much 
the book has changed my friendships. Specifically, I've had friends like I'm tour, I, I'm in the middle of the publicity blitz that comes with a book, right? And I travel to all these cities. And in every city, there was a friend who like carried me from city. I feel like my friends carried me like a magic carpet from city to city, wow. rides to the airport, taking me to the train, helping me get to my events, coming to my events with their friends. Like it, the, the, the extraordinary kindness and generosity, I am so blown away. Like it makes me feel like jiggly inside, like the 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 intimacy and the vulnerability and then the conversations i had one friend who was taking me to the airport and she was like she's not in the book and we're close friends and she's like i don't mean to make this about me but it feels really weird you have a book called bff and i'm not in it and, and i'm, I'm not like right i total i give her so much credit for starting that conversation and for saying i don't need this to be the christy show i want to hear from her and mm -hmm. i did tell her i was like you don't want to be in this book this book is the story of the disasters, the challenges, the ruptures. So if you're not in the book, you're probably, we're square, you know? Then I had another friend who had a lot of feelings. About, that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Great. Great. Yeah, and then another friend had feelings about how I wrote about a mutual friend of ours and she didn't agree with some of the ways I characterized some conflict. And I mean, I don't know how these no, conversations happen. She knew that who you were referring to by the uh, what's written in the book. Yeah, she's one of the few people who knew knew the person, and um, because of some of the details, and so she was she had feelings. Is it Callie? About... No, that's a good guess. It's not Callie. <laughs> it's not Callie. It's weird though. Like with Callie, Callie and I. She is a friend that I ghosted and I, I ghosted her. There is no euphemism. I ghosted her. I did not have the skills to stay with her through a really rough patch in our friendship. We just gotten through two rough patches. I couldn't do a third. And I was so scared to set a boundary with her. Like it really came down to, I need more space. I need to set a boundary. And it, that was so scary to me. The thought of disappointing her or hurting her. I really felt like leaving was better, which is self-serving and also really, un I was very unskilled at the time and I didn't talk about it with anyone. I think my other friends would have been like, there's a middle ground here, but I can't see middle ground when I'm in a lot of pain and scared. So I just ghosted. We've come back together, but I still, and we've had a really beautiful process around the book because I, I showed her early drafts and I let her know what I was doing. And she's been extremely generous to me. And I really try, no one's ever written anything about me. I've, I have, I've never been the subject of someone else's book, but all my friends are showing me how to do it with grace and authenticity. And I'm honestly blown away every day. Wow. Um, what was the aha moment for you when you were writing the book and you said, this is it. This is, I know exactly where I want this book to go. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, I just got like a little heart tremor when you said that, you know, there was a, I, I had originally had this jealousy journal thing that was not working. It opens with me scratching myself and bleeding. It's just like, it was not the right vibe. <laughs> Let me put it that now, way. But did you make that choice or was it an editor that came in and said, I don't think this is the way to start it? Uh, the, oh, you know, that's a great question. That's super fair. My editor, I was still sort of enamored with like how gutsy I was being. And the, my editor, my agent was like, maybe. And my editor was like, uh, this feels like a cake that's not cooked. Like I handed her a like a batter and she was like, I need a cooked cake, please. So I, you know, went back to the drawing board and my agent had suggested, you know, why don't you start with Meredith's memorial service? And I thought it was a great idea, but I stalled for a couple of weeks, like three weeks, because I felt like, well, if it's not my idea, it doesn't count. Like if I hadn't come up with it, it felt like I was stealing an idea from my agent who is there to help me craft a book. But I just was real hung up on, I couldn't see it until she showed it to me. So I wrote mm -hmm. that first, I wrote that opening scene probably 10 times, which is it felt like a lot at the time. It's probably not really in the scheme of making a book, but I wrote it 10 times. And as soon as by that 10th time, I was like, oh, we're going to start here and we're going to go back and forth in time. 
And I knew it would end with, um, you know, I knew by then that Meredith had passed away. And so the extraordinary friendship experiences I had around her passing, I thought that's, that's where we're leading. That's where we're going. So I think it was right around the third week, Mark, after my agent made the suggestion, like, why don't you stop starting with your bloody arm and start with the memorial service? How much of your book had you written before anyone else saw it? A uh, husband, friends, oh. anyone? I, I, I probably showed little snippets, dramatic snippets. I probably shared it with my right, probably four or five of those. That might be even too many, maybe three of those to my writing group and got those polished. But then the whole thing I really just showed first to my agent because I was, I felt like I was just swimming backwards in so much of the process that I couldn't tell if it was good or if it was just like Christy Tate's diary, which that's not what anybody wants to read. Mm hmm. Well, they'll read it if they're if they can relate to it. And I, you know, there's a lot to relate. Um, the title, did you was this your brainchild? Did this come from an editor or yeah, this one was mine. And I mean it's funny, I love to talk about the title because it's really tongue in cheek. Mm -hmm. Be the the notion of BFF, like best friend forever, that kind of energy, trying to be the best girl, which I we talked about in fifth grade with Brittany, how I was trying to be the best forever, that really came back to haunt me and hurt me. So this notion, I think there's something about the notion of BFF that's already problematic for someone like me, trying to be the best and trying to make things last forever. It's such a high bar. It's such a hard mark to reach that I think that kind of energy is not my best way to enter a friendship. My best assets in friendship are softness, vulnerability, humility. And that's sort of incompatible with like gunning to be the BFF. Like, in law school, I was really, really into making good grades and trying to be the valedictorian. That energy doesn't work in friendship. It hasn't for me. And so the title is sort of a tongue in cheek, like, let's grapple with what this language is around friendship and what it means to be best and what forever means. I kept thinking best female friend. You know, that's where, that's where my brain went with this. I want to show you. Uh, and thank you, Natasha. Just ordered the audible version of your book. Looking forward oh, to hearing Natasha, this. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Uh, I told you, uh, and there'll be more that will sell as well. Um, go, getting to the completion of the book, and obviously the book is not completed. It's just going to live on and live on and live on. Um, I always am curious, who made the final decision as this book is ready to go? You, your editor, your agent, the publisher, who made that final decision? That's interesting. So I think it's a, my experience with my editor is that it's extremely collaborative. Like we know, we know we're going to do three rounds of substantive edits. And we got to the end of that third round. It was in June. And I knew I had said everything I needed to say and had, had, it felt complete to me. And then she signed off. We sort of like worked with each other to sign off sort of simultaneously. And then mm -hmm. later on, I actually had <laughs> very weirdly, one, one of the parts that was the hardest to complete for me was the acknowledgements. And the author, my experience with my, my um, publisher is that the author has complete control over the acknowledgements for better or worse. And I was changing those up until the last minute. Obviously, that's not part of the substance of the story, but I wanted to get it right. Mm -hmm. And now that the book is out there, if you've released it, you've let go. Um, how has your life changed since the book has come out? I have had the extraordinary pleasure and honor of hearing women and men pull me aside and tell me a friendship story or several friendship stories. Additionally, some of them are telling me going all the way back to their childhood, like why they think the root of their troubles around friendship. One of my friends, you know, he had a lot of, you know, his parents had a lot of chaos and he had two brothers and he was the middle child. And I so identify as a middle child. 
And just hearing these stories, some from strangers and some from intimates, that I think that's changing my life, that people would trust me with their stories and keep the conversation around friendship going. I'm already out on a limb. Everybody already knows. My stories are in that green book, right, that already exists. But for people to meet me out on the limb and say, I've ghosted too, I have a friend. Someone came up to me in a signing line and was like, I'm in the process of ghosting someone. And I, all I could say was, tell me more, tell me more. I want to hear all about, I don't have, I'm not an advice columnist. I'm not an expert, but I want to hear the stories and I hold them close to my heart. And that's absolutely going to change me. Wow. Well, I think your book is going to change a lot of people. I see a whole movement coming out of this book. (laughs) Yes. Um, Are you working on something else now? Or I I know that you're very busy uh, getting the word out about this book. And yes. uh, it, you know, um, it popped up in my feed uh, week before last. And I said, this sounds like an interesting book. I wrote to you immediately. And thank you for saying yes. Uh, you know, in this business, it, it all boils down to whether people say yes or no. So I thank you for saying yes. I thank you for writing the book. Uh, we are at the end of our show. I, this hour flew for me. Um, I'm going to say a few closing remarks, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, and I'm going to give you the final word today. It can be about anything that we talked about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. Um, The book, once again, is BFF. I'm going to bring it up on the screen so that everybody uh, can see uh, the cover of your book. Uh, I hope that everybody that sees this show either live or later uh, we'll get this book. Um, we've all experienced aspects of this book in our own lives. I'm sure that every single person reading the book will agree with me on this. Um, each day I pull a word and I focus on that word for the day. And the word that I pulled this morning was fairness. And I was thinking about fairness as I was uh, preparing for today's interview. Um, and being fair to ourselves, being fair to our, the friends in our lives, being fair to the people that matter to us. Uh, I think, you know, going back to Julia Cameron, do those morning pages if you can. Uh, you all may have a future book uh, in your future, more than one, maybe two. I can't wait for the next one. I want to say, Christy, that I hope that anytime that uh, a book comes out or something that you feel that you want to talk about, that you'll keep me on your list and that you'll reach out to me. Um, I this has been such a great book to read. Uh, and again, I can't say enough about it. Uh, and congratulations on the success of this. And uh, Reese Witherspoon, you know, that's great. Uh, I also end every show by telling everyone, and this goes very much, and those who follow my show know that I say this at the end of every show. Pick up the phone and call someone that matters to you someone that you haven't spoken to in a long time. Um, I got verklempt as as I began to read the book, to read that you make this incredible friendship and she passes away right in in the prologue or the first chapter of the book and how important friendships are in our lives. So it's important that you pick up the phone and you call someone, not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, a phone call and let them know how they make a difference in your life. A dear friend of mine says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. Some are in canoes, some are in yachts, some are on sailboats, some are pushing tugboats upstream. It doesn't matter to me what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave the screen, Christy, and you've got the final word. Don't worry about how to end the show. As soon as you say goodbye, the credits will roll. And thanks again for doing this today. It's all yours. Thanks, Richard. You have an amazing energy, and I'm sure that your listeners treasure it as much as I do now. And I just want to say that BFF is a book I wrote as a love letter to anybody who struggles and longs for friendships that they haven't quite been able to put in place. And maybe you're telling yourself, oh, it all should come naturally, or there's something wrong with me. And I'm here to say, I had those exact same thoughts. And a little bit of work I did with a friend made a huge difference in my life. And Anne Lamott, the writer says, we're all just walking each other home. 
And I love that. And there's no reason why we can't do it with and for each other. So I'm with Richard, pick up the phone, call somebody, make a connection, five minutes, five minutes is enough to say, I miss you. I love you. I wanted to hear your voice and it could change the course of someone's day. And then you do that every day and you've changed the course of your life. So thanks for having me. Please enjoy BFF. I wrote it for anyone who's longing for friendship or has a couple of shame stashes around their friendships. Uh, You're not alone. I'm with you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.